Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to TV7 Middle East Review. I'm Miri Eisen, I'm standing in for Danny Ayalon, and together with me, co-host Dr. Eran Lehrman. There's a slew of events that have happened over the last month, as always in the Middle East. We'll be diving into the non-issues of Vienna, we'll be diving into Yemen and the Iranian um, connection, and of course, the connection of Russia, Ukraine, and what that has to do with the Middle East, and perhaps more. Iran, let's start off with what I would call kind of non-events. What, what has happen? not happened in Vienna? Where are we with that now? It's, there's clearly um, a, an issue with the Iranian position um, on three different levels or on three different issues. How far are they willing to go in rolling back what they've already been doing since uh, 2018? What scope of sanctions will they uh, agree to, to see lifted because their dem- original demands were uh, beyond, uh, beyond American reach. Then maybe and, go back a step also and remind us in that sense of where they thought they could get to. Well, it, it, at first they've acted as if they are really in a position of power. The Americans uh, were left out of the room and they were trying to lay down the rules they, well, they walked back from everything that has been agreed until May last year uh, when they came back after a few months after Raisi was elected. And uh, they, they basically wanted to talk about total removal of all sanctions and uh, in response were very uh, limited in what they were willing to do about uh, rolling back their enrichment program. So maybe and in should... addition, there's a third issue which has yet to come to uh, a head which is the Iranian demand for guarantees that the next American administration will not walk back. So maybe take us which through cannot that be side. delivered. So what does that mean, that the U.S. is more involved, that the Iranians are not getting what they want? Is it because of Russia? What are the different impetuses here that because of that we're not seeing anything going on now this month? Well, it took, it, it, the Iranians must take a historical decision for them to walk back from these... Uh, unreasonable demands to something that actually can be worked out. Uh, I have to say that there was a point in time earlier this month when you started hearing grumblings of potential action, mainly uh, resumption of uh, general sanctions, not just American sanctions, not only from the U.S., but from others, uh, uh, certainly in the West. And uh, there were even uh, hints that the U.S. will not rule out military action under certain circumstances. Uh, the British language, from uh, certainly from uh, Foreign Secretary Truss, is, uh, is much the same. So the Iranians were forced to sit and take stock of their situation. The Russians at the time, I think, could ba- basically convey to them that they are in a delicate position. They are not masters of the universe. They, uh, they are, they are, there is 
a point in which they will have to scale back their expectations. However, on this one last vital point, what they're asking for the, from the US cannot be delivered on. And here is where um, some ideas have been floated in the media, which could have been the basis of a solution, but because of the Ukrainian situation, they are not likely to be realized. The idea was this, the US cannot guarantee. Okay, so we have the US not being able to guarantee. And the Russians will take the Iranian enriched uranium, keep it, and if the next American administration reimposes, walks back from the agreement and reimposes sanctions, the Russians will re-deliver to the Iranians. That so was wait, an idea. This but is how, the Russians playing with enriched uranium to be able to impact on the Ukrainian front? I mean, are we seeing a combination here that's bringing the Russia-Ukraine crisis directly into the Iranian nuclear issue? When you're punching way above your economic weight, as, as Russia, Russia does, doing. you play passive-aggressive uh, across the board. That's kind of scary to think about because it's not just the Russia-US. If I go back to the Iranian and what you said is that Iran was also basically trying to get way more than they ever thought they could and the US is standing back. And I'm wondering of the connection between that raising um, of, of level of fighting as we're seeing it from um, Iranian back Houthi in Yemen, which is a whole subject to talk about. Is that also connected in that sense to the non-events in Vienna? Very interesting question, because I've heard and, and actually uh, wrote also the, just the other day for the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, a short paper on this Houthi attack on Abu Dhabi. Um, basically, there are two theories. One is that since the death of Hassan Irlou, who was the Iranian ambassador and, uh, in Sana'a to the Houthis, and in fact, sort of the, the Iranian grand uh, puppeteer, in, in Yemen. Not sure he'd like that term, but okay. Um, well, where he is now, he wouldn't care anymore. Oh, okay. He oh. passed away in mysterious circumstances. That and doesn't that was, usually mean corona? Well, uh, I think the, the hint was corona, but uh, in Yemen, uh, okay. you don't know. The, the, the long and the short of it, there was a notion put forward by some analysts that the uh, Houthis are slipping out of Iranian control. They are fighting for their own lives. They've lost a huge, uh, a huge amount of, of, of their troops in the battles in Marib and Shabwa, uh, uh, fighting against the brigades, the giants' brigades, Al-Amalek, that were raised and organized and equipped and trained by the UAE. So they took their revenge regardless of what the Iranians are saying. That's one theory. Okay, I mean, we may need to go back a step on that one just to be able to make clear that for our viewers in that sense that the Houthis, I mean, are... I don't know if you say Yemenite speaking. Do you say Arabic speaking? Yemenite well, speaking, they are, but they're Yemenite. They is, this is uh, a the, the tradition based on the traditional Shia majority, I think, of the Yemen mountains, and uh, and they have taken control of Sanaa already seven years ago. So you're saying that they right now may be actually finding their own voice away from Iran. That's one theory. Okay. And the other says. Don't look for contradictions. Uh, <laughs> what the Iranians are doing is to complement their diplomacy with a demonstration of force uh, testing the proposition that the Biden administration does not have the stomach for a fight.
All right. And if that is the case, if the response from Washington is lukewarm, uh, and and there seem to be uh, uh, there seems to be a fierce debate within the American team mm-hmm. on how to respond to Iranian behavior. Okay. If if the response is lukewarm, then the Iranians uh, have a sense that they can push their luck in Vienna as well. So I don't see I don't have to go to this uh, explanation of a divergent path between the Houthis and the Iranians to understand why in the middle of a uh, intense talks in Vienna, um, Abu Zabi is hit, and in fact, uh, the, the the drones and missiles land very close to a major American airbase. So you just said that they landed close to a major American airbase. We've seen a lot of attacks over the last, certainly I would say, four to six months from Yemen, from the Houthis, towards different targets, both in Abu Dhabi or in Saudi Arabia. And I'm wondering in that sense, I wondered at the time also during this month, could that be on purpose, not on purpose, that they could be more exact and they choose not to be so? They don't want to go over a certain level? I think it's important as we look forward. Does that mean that they do have limits? Well, these drones uh, are controlled. So they, uh, they, are, they go to their targets. When, when the, uh, apparently the, the Iranians themselves attacked uh, Abqaq um, during the uh, Trump era, uh, they hit their targets. Uh, so yes, they may, but uh, they may be uh, signaling that they can do more, uh, and that is a classical, uh, um, let's say, uh, controlling the levels of deterrence. They can. Det- Sure, because Escalation they dominance, so to speak. So in that escalation dominance, we've heard also a lot of rhetoric. They've been threatening in that sense. Ret- can ret- we- rhetoric and imagery. Uh, they, they have put through uh, forward on the social media images of Burj Khalifa being hit. Now, for Americans who remember 9-11, this must be a uh, very blunt uh, message. It's funny. You say Americans, and I think that for the world today, Burj Khalifa is a symbol in that sense, like you say, like the Americans, but for all of the Europeans who all come to the Emirates for their summer-like vacation, that would be the symbol. The taking it down is not even about, you know, the Emirates at all. It's about hitting a Western type of image in that sense. It's a very strong image to put out there. And that's exactly what the Houthis are doing, uh, quite deliberately, quite knowingly. It's a message to the UAE itself, and it's a message to the Americans and to and to the West generally. So as we look around in that sense, the Middle East, and we went from Iran and Vienna and Russia down to Yemen in that sense, um, Iran, of course, is the major influence over Hezbollah in Lebanon. Iran, what's going to happen with Lebanon? I'm sitting here right now. It's cold, wintry days, even here in the Middle East, and we'll get to Turkey in a bit too. It's snowed in Istanbul and in Athens, may snow in and around our area. What's going to happen in Lebanon? They don't have any electricity at all. People are like leaving the government on and off. On and off. Uh, You saw that Khariri was in tears uh, during a a television interview. He's looking at the country. His father helped uh, uh, rebuild after the civil war and and that he tried to lead and and failed uh, because of Iranian subversion. And uh, uh, he, he was obliged to sit 
with the murderers of his father in the same government. You know, uh, Shakespeare couldn't have written such a play. I agree, but my challenge is that he said that he's going to be emigrating to the United Arab Emirates vis-a-vis our last conversation. So I wonder about that one too. But poor man. But poor. I mean, not, not poor in any economic sense, mind Absolutely. you. But having said so, it is really heartbreaking. It's a country that could have been a, a good place to live in was for many years a good place to live in despite all the tribulations since the 1970s. But it's been ruined first by the Palestinian um, conquest, conquest really of large parts of Lebanon, the state and the state. But that lasted such a long time ago. And that ended in the 80s and then they fell into their own internal squabbling and now they are totally, they've been hijacked. It's a country that has been hijacked by an Iranian agency Hassan Nasrallah uh, may go around as the leader of a political party in Lebanon, but his other calling card is the representative of Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei in Lebanon, and that's his ultimate identity. And consequences for Lebanon have been utterly disastrous, and and every other Lebanese, even Lebanese, young Lebanese Shia that I from here and there pick up uh, their anguish, they all know that. So here we are. We're looking at Israel's northern front when we look at Lebanon and from Lebanon to Syria and the Iranian intervention in both. I want to go a bit further north. Turkey, that large, dominant, important country of the Middle East, of the Europe, Asia, Middle East. It's such an interesting place upon itself. How is it trying to find itself You know how I resolve this question. Where is Turkey and where are we? We are Eastern Mediterranean countries. That's the key to the understanding of where we are. And they are not an East, but they are they also are. an Eastern Mediterranean. Yes, but they are by now the focal point of the alignment of Eastern Mediterranean forces that fear and worry about Erdogan's ambitions. But what has been happening in the last few weeks is, I think, an indication that the message went home. Okay. Uh, in December, Erdogan was barred by the... Biden administration from participating in the summit for the democracies. Uh, Bennett was there for three minutes. Barred cut, or uninvited? Uninvited. Oh, uninvited. Okay. But uh, okay. this is a NATO, the only member of NATO that was uh, deemed by Washington to be a not, not, not to be a democracy. Now, no. he was elected. There are political parties. There is there's opposition. There. But uh, the conduct, internal conduct and international conduct, of uh, of the of the Erdogan regime, if that's the proper term, has been such that Washington has sent a signal. Now, the, coming against the background of the collapse of the Turkish lira, the uh, downward spiral of the Turkish economy. Even, I mean, not as much as Lebanon, but something very equivalent to just watching it crash and burn. But a much bigger economy. It's it's one of the it's one of the G twenty. It is, I think, the seventeenth largest economy in the world. Uh, it's uh, and and uh, this is clearly a question of political mismanagement. Uh, his response, I think, was to fire his head statistician because the numbers, he didn't like the numbers. <laughs> it's a wonderful way to be able to contend. Okay, I'll fire you. Bring me other numbers. <laughs> uh, it's funny but sad. But the, the silver lining is that apparently uh, Erdogan himself sobered up enough to, to seek um, a dialogue now with the forces of stability in the region, the Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, in Egypt. He, um, his conversation 
with uh, our, our president, uh, uh, sure, president Herzog, Herzog. Uh, on the occasion of the passing of Herzog's mother. But also inviting him to come and visit in visit. Ankara. Uh, I'm, I'm keep bearing in mind that Oa and my mother were both almost killed in March 48 in the same building in Jerusalem. Oh, my <laughs> the goodness. famous bombing of the... Uh, of the uh, national institutions at the heart of Jerusalem. And they were they, both there at the they time. They were both there at the time, oh. knew each other well. But in, in any case, uh, now she passed away, and, her, and this was another opportunity for Erdogan to send a, f a strong message that he wants to uh, revive dialogue at, the high at a high level. Herzog is fast emerging the way Shimon Peres used to act as Israel's uh, premier diplomat. As the mediator, as somebody that they're willing to accept, it's easier. It's, he's, he Not gives a, off that a, kind of thing. He's now above politics. Yes, and that's a wonderful place. When you look at Turkey itself, and I get a look also at the map behind you, and it happens to have Turkey in it, and then we get to remember that on the other side of the Black Sea that Turkey is on are both Ukraine and Russia, and those, you know, the noises that we're hearing from there. So Turkey looking towards the Russia-Ukraine, the whole aspect of NATO and the Russia-Ukraine, Turkey is part of NATO. Does it bite into that also? Is that something that this last well, month has impacted? I, th I think for the Turks at the end of the day, given where they live, mm -hmm. membership of NATO is still precious. And they came to the edge. Of, there's no procedure in NATO statutes, in the 1949 uh, statutes of NATO, for throwing a member out. There's no provo no provision for it. Because they never thought that would happen. Yes, but there, there are ways of organizing work in Evere, uh, in Brussels, so that uh, certain participants don't go to the upper floors in the, the decision-making process. And so the, it, it's becoming increasingly um, delicate. And of course, uh, to incur the anger of the American political establishment, by the way, both sides of the aisle, um, the pro-Greek, uh, pro-Eastern Mediterranean lobby in, in the Congress is led by Ted Deutsch and, uh, and uh, Ned Bilirakis, who are uh, Democrat and Republican, both from Florida, both very much supportive of what the emerging uh, alignment of Israel, Greece, Cyprus, Egypt. Perhaps. And so, and by the way, uh, what also happened this month, the U.S., uh, um, basically said that they are not uh, uh, supporting the East Med pipeline. Some people interpret this as a decision to be more friendly to Erdogan, but basically it simply never made much economic sense. It is a much more viable proposition to build a, a power station in Cyprus and lay a power cable. Even though it makes you wonder in that sense, because gas is such an important part of exports, and there are a lot of alternative gas pipelines that are going on. Certainly, we can go back to Iran and the Gulf and the different propositions there. You'd think that it would be something as an alternative line. Well, but you can use the gas to make electricity and then bring the electricity to Europe instead of bringing gas to Europe. And in the future, you can use the same um, cable to run uh, um, energy from renewable sources, from but so solar, for example, which is already happening in the Western Mediterranean, could happen also in the future, so in the Eastern Mediterranean. So far, gas is, is a tool of policy. We are talking about Israeli gas uh, lighting up Jordan, uh, helping- Maybe Lebanon, but not really. Helping Egypt and indirectly probably reaching Lebanon through the Egyptian, Jordanian, Syrian, Lebanese, arrangement, which 
some of this gas may actually come from Israeli sources at the end of the day. And that's well, the positive aspect of the gas, but I think we're also seeing some of the negative where perhaps Iran is stopping a gas pipeline from Iran into Turkey in this very cold time period of winter. So look how it can be used this way or that. Yeah, the Turks uh, basically have a rivalry with Iran going back to the Battle of Chaldiran <laughs> in the 16th century. But, and, way and, back. <laughs> way back. And, and I don't think anyone in Ankara is enamored of the notion of Iran with the bomb. Having said so, they do have to walk both sides of the aisle when, when it comes to energy supply. Um, the idea of, a, the, there's been talk also about an Israeli-Turkish connection but that simply technically doesn't work. You can either you cannot go for through the, the gas or the gas. We, we cannot export gas to via Turkey or th- or to Turkey for the simple reason that it, there's uh, Syria, there's <laughs> Syria in the middle, or Lebanon, or both, or we have to subver- uh, subvert uh, Cypriot uh, sovereignty. And at the end, and we and do and want to be which part will not of happen. And with that, that, that's not going to happen. And then we'll go into that Turkish-Greek aspect also on Cyprus, which is but important. One, one positive outcome of mm-hmm. this rethinking of Turkish priorities could be, at least theoretically, but under good indications, uh, a political solution in Libya, uh, walking w- away. Oh, that's been out of the news for a long time. Yeah, but uh, I think it tells you something about the nature of the uh, transformation we are living through that both key players, two of the key players in, in the Libyan yeah. game, not including uh, Saif al-Islam and Qadhafi, the son, okay. the son and putative heir, heir, but if you look at uh, the, Beba, the rumors about the Beba meeting uh, Barnea in uh, Amman, and uh, serious indications that Haftar has been in Israel recently, that Israel is by now a, a significant player in the regional strategic uh, equations and in a manner un- that none of us could have dreamt as about. As a mediator. Five years. Who would have thought yes. that we would be the mediator? We would be the one that would be able to bring sides together. Not to mention that Bennett offered uh, uh, Putin to mediate with Ukraine. Um, this has been declined. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, put on the table there, Iran. I mean, even for us as we're sitting here now, so your mother was here in 1948. My parents immigrated from the United States. But think about it, that one in six Israeli citizens, um, their native language is Russian. And of that, a significant part of people who came from the Ukraine. So actually, when we yeah. say not to do it in that way, we certainly have Knesset members and a large portion of Israelis who are Russian speaking. And I'm not sure which side they're on, on the Putin <laughs> side or on the Ukrainian inside. Well, the Russians tend to lump all of the Russian speakers in Israel as sons of the homeland. But um, quite a number actually have come from Ukraine. That doesn't necessarily make them uh, uh, friends of the Ukrainian nationalist movement because we had our issues with Ukrainian nationalism in history in the 20s, not to mention later. So it is a very complicated situation. It is definitely not in Israel's interest for this to slide into uh, open warfare because that would uh, greatly disrupt uh, the West, draw attentions clearly away from the Iranian issue, which for us is up and uppermost. Uh, would uh, greatly empower the Chinese in their bid for, for dominance. Uh, it's... If anything, if, if, if something can be done to 
stop at the edge of open warfare there, I think it will be good for the world. But it's not easy because the, uh, the Russians are playing from a very, uh, very aggressively from a very defensive position. Which is oh so Russian. In our last minutes, I kind of want to come close to us in this Middle East review. We haven't talked at all, at all about Hamas maybe rattling a little bit, more rhetoric, even more actions perhaps over this last month, not necessarily from the Gaza Strip, but out of Judea and Samaria. Are we seeing a change there, the change in level of rhetoric or also action? I think the action is related to what seems to be shaping up as a struggle of power in the West Bank for who would take over when Abbas ultimately uh, succumbs to the forces of nature. That could take years. Uh, he's, you know, hail, uh, not so healthy. Hail 86. Right? 86 <laughs> <Not> <laughs> and, and yes, so clearly uh, um, there's a power struggle uh, emerging. Uh, I would uh, I would say that the kingmaker and possibly even the king would be the man in command of the uh, military or police capabilities, Majid Faraj. But that's my bet. That's but your bet. The, but is that where the Palestinians would be looking and what right. that does? And, but so Hamas are making are noises to show them being on the stage right now and to see if they can pick up um, supporters or allies in the internal wreckage within Fatah. And that, I think, is reflected also in the rising level of violence. And frankly, there are people on the Israeli side who contribute to, the, uh, to this or, or, or thrive under uh, conditions. So uh, it is time for our uh, military authorities to exert uh, greater efforts to bring you know, the flames down across the board and, and bring this under control while we talk to Hamas about the f uh, larger solution to the Gaza problem. So when we talk about Middle East Review, we're looking over what happened over the last month. And here in our last bit of the show, Iran, what do you think may be happening in the near future? What could we expect? I, I, I think we are coming to the fork on the road on Vienna. Okay. The time is running out. I don't think this can last through February without a, either a blow-up or an agreement. My, I would guess a blow-up, but um, it's, it's uh, either or. Um, and uh, in the case of a blow-up, I believe that we are going to see the sanction system reinstated while efforts will be made for, uh, to restrain Israel from taking direct action. So possible sanctions against Iran, possible sanctions against Russia because of Ukraine, um, delisting the Houthis from the terror organizations. Relisting. They well, have been they delisted. They were delisted, but they need right. to be relisted yes. in that sense. So we're looking around and continuing to hear all of these different rattlings. Something good that we can think about for the future? Well, um, we are learning that the Omicron can be lived with, for example. That's very The Israeli important. economy is still uh, standing and, and growing dramatically and, and impressively. And um, I think some of the beginner's mistakes that the Biden administration made uh, are being un unlearned and, and uh, lessons learned. And, and that addressed. could lead. And some of this would be addressed. And hopefully this would lead to a more robust 
standing in world affairs. So standing on that session there, Iran, thank you so much for this conversation today. I'd like to thank our viewers for listening to us on TV7 Middle East Review. Shalom from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.